Hello. Oh, oh. I know there's always music going. You no, told me that every I, week. I was not going to say that. <laughs> I wasn't. Uh, hey, Father Peter, guess what? What? It's the podcast time. It's podcast. It's podcast. It's podcast time. This is The Word on the Hill. We are the Lanky Guys. My name is Dr. Scott Powell. My name is Father Peter Musset. And we're here to open up the scriptures to you. And, and the liturgy. And the liturgy and the scriptures and your minds, man. We're going to blow your minds. Dude, I uh, was well, watching. We're going to try. I was watching Napoleon Dynamite the other day. Really? Yeah. And uh, as I was in my travels on the airplane, and one of my Instead absolute, of reading the book that I gave you? <laughs> I didn't bring it with me. Whatever, dude. And and one of my favorite moments is when he throws the muscle man out of the, the bus and watches moment. it trail behind. That is a pretty fun. I, that's just like, I just want to <laughs> do that now. You should have done it from the plane when you were. Right. No, did, that doesn't make sense. Do you ever notice how but, being a tall guy, how you can't see out of those plane windows? You mean a lanky guy? Yeah. It's a, a pain because you got to scrunch down. It's the worst. Father Peter, where did you just return from? Speaking of being on aeroplanes. I returned from the Walk for Life San Francisco. Walk for Life San Francisco. I just want to give a shout out to So I wasn't able to go. Family commitments, et cetera, et cetera. But um, a couple of years ago, was it last year? Some of the folks at St. Thomas Aquinas. So there is a March for Life every year in Washington, D.C., where hundreds of thousands of people gather to support the right to life and support the unborn and the understanding of, of life being from, from conception to natural death, right? Beautiful event. I used to go in college when I was at Steubenville. It's a wonderful thing. Absolutely. But last year, the year before, some folks from here started saying, well, why don't we start attending? Because there is a March for Life on the West Coast, and it happens in San Francisco. And I... I'm so edified by the fact that you le- you've led these groups the last couple of years because this is where it gets real. And this oh is where boy. it's is not it, it's not a family reunion. It's not a safe, we're surrounded and insulated in this kind of safe, wonderful environment where we're hearing empowering, uplifting things and speakers and everything else. You are in the heart of it and people are shouting at you and yelling at you and it's it's real. And every uh every year when you guys well, the last couple of years when we started going I just love talking to our students and seeing the pictures and videos and just being like, this feels like the front lines of this battle. There is still a front line to this and it's, and it's beautiful and it's such a great witness for people in San Francisco to see our students and all sorts of young people from around that region and here walking for life and supporting the unborn and, and yeah. doing it in a way that, I don't know, I, we're, we're going to hear all the controversy about the March for Life being forgotten when it happens in Washington, D.C. because the media just doesn't really cover it. But what's really, really forgotten is this other one that you guys do on the West Coast where it's really grassroots and kind of raw and really beautiful to be a part of. So I just want to affirm you and our students who went and, um, yeah, that group of people for really being on the front lines of this still ongoing battle. I have to say one of the my most favorite paradigms that I've received was from the podcast a few weeks ago. Our podcast? Yeah, absolutely. Or Father Baron, uh, Bishop Barron's. <laughs> Except from the Catholic stuff, guys. Oh. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm just kidding. It was, for, it was from podcasts. you. We're talking about what the wrath of God is, <laughs> oh, which is boy. which is a, it, totally contrary to what we think it is. Yeah. It's it's actually bringing life where there's darkness, bringing light where there's darkness. That's what this first reading is all about and, today. And so, what's so cool is that like w- w- March for Life is us going and bringing life yeah. where there's darkness. Yeah. Like like walking, doing a walk. It's it's just actually getting together and 
And our paradigm was abide, just abide with each other mm. and abide with God to act in accord with God and act in accord with each other. And like, I'll tell you, it was, I made a little video and maybe it'll pop up for you guys, but like now it, it has to, because you've said it. I air. know it. And it's just fun because like the truth was, is that we had a great time. Yeah. It wasn't aggressive. It wasn't some sort of activism. It was being with God and being with each other and, and, and being, and making a public witness of that. Yeah. Um, Which I I think I think everything you said is totally applicable to our readings this week, dude. Well, then the let's get into some Zephaniah. Let's so we're just, in the yes, well, Zephaniah before, two. Before three, that, before yeah. that, we're, <laughs> in the, we're in the fourth Sunday of Ordinary Time. Oh shoes, in case you're oh shoes. So Father Peter, what is our first reading for the fourth Sunday of Ordinary Zephaniah Time? Zephaniah two three. Three, twelve, thirteen. So it was weird. I love the thought of some of you out there just scrambling frantically, thinking, "Where is Zephaniah? There's a Zephaniah in the Bible," and yeah. flipping through and trying to find it. So it's there one is verse, indeed a Zephaniah. Yeah, chapter two, verse three, and then you jump chapter three, verse twelve to thirteen. So it's a little wild. Yeah, I'll tell you why we jumped that. Uh, our responsorial psalm is coming from Psalm forty-six toward the very, very end of the Psalter. Verses 6 through 7, 8 through 9, and 9 through 10, the responsorial actually doesn't come from the psalm at all. It is lifted from Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. From, it is lifted from uh, the Sermon on the Mount. But it's, I think it's appropriate. Our second reading is from 1 Corinthians mm. 1, 26 to 31. Yeah, we're marching right through 1 Corinthians. This is actually the passage that talks about what I mentioned last week. I think I talked about this, so we'll get to that. I don't remember what you said last week. Yeah, I know you don't. That's my problem. Our gospel reading is coming from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, stopping abruptly at A. (laughs) First half of the verse. Yeah. Good. We get to do this podcast in the light of the beautiful new aquarium that you've put in the studio. Dude, and I meant- It's very exciting. It's very exciting, and and, uh, we're going to name the first fish Scott and Peter. No. Oh, yeah, yeah, dude. We have to. Wow. (laughs) S&P, baby. S&P. S&P. Oh, yeah, yeah. The S&P index. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's what that's what the tank can be called. The, the S&P and S&P 500. Yeah, hopefully the fish don't kill each other. Yeah. All right, well. And, and eat each other to death. Speaking of that. <laughs> no, speaking of fish being killed. Really? Zephaniah. No, you really. Talk to me. Okay. Yes. Zephaniah. We, Zephaniah, did I already say this or did we cut this out? Zephaniah is one of those books I bet a lot of people have just never heard of. Because it's not a book you hear a lot about. I mean, when was the last time you heard of a kid being named Zephaniah? uh, My friend Zephy, who I went to high school with. No. Zephy Husni. I think he's named after Zephaniah. His name is, he's called Zephy. What could Zephy be short for? Zephaniah! It's Andre's brother. No, they're Husni's, man. Good family. Really good family. Husni's are cool. Yeah, and they love the Lord. Okay. Here's what we know about Zephaniah. Zephaniah is a very short book. I think it's about three chapters or so, something okay. like that, three or four. So it's very short. Um, here's what you need to know about Zephaniah before we launch headlong into the middle of it. Um, we see in the text, if you read through Zephaniah, Zephaniah as a person is a person of probably considerable standing in ancient Judah. Um, he was probably related to the royal line. He's probably a royal prophet that's connected to the house. Um, and I, I just want to read the very first verse of Zephaniah because it gives us really the only information that we have about who this is, but knowing who he is actually colors what he says. Does that oh, make sense? Okay, yeah, yeah. So it's chapter one, verse one of Zephaniah. It says this, the, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, who is the son of Cushi, who is the son of, um, Gedaliah, who is the son of Amariah, who is the son of Hezekiah during the reign of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah. 
I cannot, okay. I cannot understand what I know. It was just said. That's a lot of stuff. What you pull from that, this little family lineage, is that he is the fourth, um, what is he, the, the fourth generation descendant of King Hezekiah. Okay. And you have heard of King Hezekiah before, right? Do you remember you, King Hezekiah? Yeah, absolutely. So he was King Hezekiah, if I'm not mistaken, he was around the time of Isaiah, right? And he was the king that Isaiah was prophesying sort of to and against at one point. Maybe he's maybe. also the one, we've talked about him a lot, you remember he is that one that kind of embodies Israel. And there's that story of Assyria kind of attacking Jerusalem, and yeah. as they're attacking, he gets sick physically in his body, and the worse oh. the battle gets, the worse he gets. Oh. And then he, um, there's this miraculous intervention. Assyria pulls out because God intervenes, and as they pull back, he gets healthy again. And there's all these things. He has this kind of end note to his life that's pretty ugly. He's this this faithful king who turns to the Lord, who entrusts Israel and himself to the Lord. But at the very end of his life, you know, toward the end of his story, he, um, again, this guy who's very trusting in the Lord says, well, I don't want that attack like we got attacked from Assyria ever to happen again. So I'm going to create a little alliance with these new people, the Babylonians. So he invites Babylon to come down and see all the wealth and the storehouses and the riches of Israel, saying, don't you want to form an alliance? And of course, Babylon is going to use that in a couple generations against them and destroy them. So Hezekiah has some good and some bad, like everybody. But a couple generations later, you get King Josiah. And Josiah is profoundly important because he is known as one of the most important reformer kings in Israel. Oh, okay. And that's the king under whom uh, Zephaniah is prophesying. So he, and he, he's in the inner, he's, again, he seems to be descendant from the king, from Hezekiah. So he's probably part of the royal family. And his job is to um, prophesy against Judah and specifically to King Josiah. Josiah, one of the things he's most famous for, he, he um, you can read about him in Second Kings, but he um, stages this massive renovation of the temple building oh. because it got beat up under yep. Hezekiah and the Assyrians. So he has this renovation, and while they're renovating it, there's this amazing story where they're digging around in the rubble, and they find, presumably, the book, the book of Deuteronomy. Of the, yeah. And, and, and they're they, like, hey, can they you read it out loud, read this. And they, like, weep because well, they're they like, oh my following it. And then they celebrate it, and the, they read the whole thing aloud on, like, on a big stand, yeah, right? that's Josiah. Oh, okay. And he's like, oh my gosh, we've been missing all of this, and we need to come back to this and do all this. Josiah is also a young, righteous king who is killed on the plains of Megiddo. So he's cut Harder down. Megiddo. Hotter Megiddo, which is where you get the reference for Armageddon, Armageddon, which is a reference to a young, righteous king of Israel being cut down in the prime of his life. Of course, the cross is the other Armageddon. Hunter mm. Megiddo, where you have the young, righteous Jesus, king of Israel, cut down in the prime of his life by his enemies, mm. a, a betrayed by his kinsmen. Mm. Anyway, lots more of that, but that's our reference point. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So that's where, that's where um, uh, Zephaniah is. So that kind of tells us a lot about it. One of the big themes in the book is the theme of the day of the Lord. And so, bom, bom, bom. yeah, the day of the Lord is this pretty brutal idea that there is going to come a day where there is wrath and judgment and punishment and all these things for all of the evils that have occurred and the breaking of the law. Um, by the way, th- this time period makes Zephaniah a contemporary of Jeremiah, probably Nahum, maybe Habakkuk. So a lot of the other prophets that we know, right? Um, so he's got this really stark message about this coming day of the Lord, the supreme judgment. It's going to come because of all these sins, both on Judah and the nations, right? Um, and really the shape of the whole book of Zephaniah is like a, a periscope that moves outward, starting with Judah and how lousy they are, moving outward to, uh, toward all the nations and the sin of all the peoples. 
And the reason it's doing that is because it's moving from the sin of Judah, the punishment that's going to come upon them, outward to the sin of the whole world and the punishment that's going to come upon them. But if you remember, there's a principle when we read the prophets, and a lot of the prophets are really dark and talk about judgment. God only brings judgment and punishment for the sake of what? Redemption. God punishes for redemption. So if he's talking about the sin and the punishment that's going to come upon not only Judah but the whole world, it also implies the restoration that's going to come to Judah and through Judah the whole world. So it's pointing ahead. It's actually believed. And now we don't know this for sure. It's believed that part of Josiah's beautiful reforms and turning back of the whole nation is because of Zephaniah. Oh. That Zephaniah is part of the catalyst that drives Josiah to turn the entire nation, the heart of a nation, back to the Lord. So he's profoundly important in that sense because this is a big moment. So I just want to read um, a little bit of the judgment and then we'll jump into what we have for this week. Does this background make sense? Absolutely. I think it's really important and really kind of cool. So just to give you a shape of the warning that he that he gives, I'm going to read from verse 2. So... Chapter 1, verse 2. This is the warning. It's a really bleak book. Which is the one verse right before we start the reading today. No, we're in chapter 2. So this is in chapter 1. Oh, okay, got quick. it. Just really quick, just to put yeah, us yeah. there. He says, "I will." this is the Lord speaking, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Whoa. I will sweep away both men and animals, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea in your little aquarium, Father Peter. <laughs> the wicked will have only heaps of rubble when I cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. <laughs> so he's like, hey, King, I have an announcement to read to everybody. Dude, that's like, that's like, totally oh, like one of those and the word of the Lord moments. It is. But then the next verse you get why. Okay, why is that happening? Well, verse 4 says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will cut off every remnant of Baal, these pagan gods that are there, the names of the pagan and idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord, who also swear by Moloch, these pagan gods. Jerusalem, the holy people of God, are worshiping pagan false gods. That can't go on. That can't continue. And sometimes, actually, God has to step in and judge. And he only judges for the sake of redemption, right? Okay. What does all this have to do with the reading for today? So this is, this is what Zephaniah is saying. But where we pick it up is pick it up, in pick it up. verse what? Chapter 2, verse three. 3. So I want to read what happens right before this. So, again, all this destruction, day of the Lord, it's going to be real bad. I, so pro- chapter- I prophesied you doing this, by the way. Thanks, man. You're the best. Absolutely. I don't have much to say after this, so you're going to have to take, take the baton. <laughs> so chapter 2, verse 1 begins, Gather, gather, gather together, O shameful nation, Israel, because you've you've ashamed yourself. You've and, and it's not just God is really mean and mad and upset and such a bad guy. It's that Israel was called to be this particular kind of a nation. And they've become an eyesore to the nations. They failed at it. And God's like, you are so much more than this. It's not just I'm mad at you, you stink. It's that you are more than this, Israel. You are the holy people of God meant to be a royal priesthood. And look at what you've done. So gather the shameful nation before the appointed times ar- time arrives. And that day sweeps in like chaff. Before the fierce anger of the Lord comes upon you. Before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you. And then we pick up our reading for this week. That's mm. where we jump in. So, and it needs to be put in context because the Lord's kind of ticked off, <laughs> at least in this text, right? Yeah. Because they've turned his back. So, verse three, where we pick it up, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. 
You do what he commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. It Mm. is coming. So seek humility. But you can be saved. There's always hope in the midst of this, right? Um, Seek the Lord. And then we jump. Basically, it goes through Gaza is going to be obliterated, then Ashdod and Ekron and Kethrite and Canaan. It goes through all the different places that are going to be obliterated. And that's why we jump to uh, chapter 3, verse 12? Yeah, but I want to go first. Because in chapter three, right before the reading we get, we get a description of what the day of the Lord will be. And I think it's the most important description in the Old Testament for the day of the Lord and what it has to do with the New Testament. Why'd we cut it out of the reading? Well, there's just a lot. Okay. <laughs> but okay. It, it all it also helps to understand what we have in our reading. So listen to this. Just just listen to this and tell me what it reminds you of. Think of this Old Testament passage I'm okay. about to read to you, okay. the day of the Lord, and tell me what in the New Testament it might remind you of. Okay, sounds good. I'm reading chapter 3, verse 8. Therefore, because of all this destruction, punishment, all this stuff, therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day I will stand up to testify. I decided to assemble all the nations together, to gather all the kingdom, to pour out my wrath on them, my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. And then when his fire comes down, I will purify the lips of the people that they may all call in the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. And then it goes on from beyond the rivers to through and, the woods to grandmother's house. We and we will fight, 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 fight. fight. So um, a gathering together of all the nations. Totally Pentecost. I mean, this like this is totally Pentecost. I mean, as soon as you said, this, as soon as you said the gathering of the nations, and I mean, fire that's a, coming down, and then having clean lips to testify to all the peoples together. Uh, yeah, this is describing Pentecost. What on earth does that tell us? It tells us that the day of the Lord, this terrifying day that we're all afraid of, is going to bring all this wrath and destruction, is somehow connected to the day of Pentecost. Let the fire fall. Let the fire fall. So how is the day of the Lord connected to Pentecost, though? Well, I mean, the day of the Lord... Because we've talked about the day of the Lord before. I mean, yeah, I mean, the day of the Lord is often really the passion, crucifixion, death, resurrection of the Lord. And, well, the day of the Lord, I think specifically, is the crucifixion. Yes. It is that day when all those things... It's the summit of all of the work of, of salvation. Just like Hezekiah, remember I mentioned Hezekiah, embodies the fate of his people. He takes on his very body... What is happening in Jerusalem? It's being destroyed. The walls are being knocked down. His body is getting ill and sick, and the walls of his defenses are being cut down. He literally takes on in his body the punishment. Mm. Jesus, in his body, takes on the entirety of the day of the Lord, in which he is obliterated and wiped out and destroyed, and nothing is left alive, to the point where they can poke him in the side, see the blood and water rush out, and know that he has been obliterated. Yeah. He, the Good Friday is the day of the Lord, but that day of the Lord is what also makes way for this outpouring of fire on the nations in which speech literally will be purified and cleansed. And then because of all that, and again, it's hindsight's twenty twenty. It's really cryptic to look from the other direction. You're like, well, how does that all fit? But then we have our passage where we pick it up in verse 12 and it says, but then I'll leave a remnant in your midst a people humble and lowly who will take refuge in the day of the Lord, the remnant of Israel. They shall do no wrong and speak no lies, nor shall be there be found in their mouths a deceitful tongue. Dude. They shall pasture and couch their flocks with no one to disturb them. Dude, I mean, I, I'm listening to the day of the Lord and, and this is one sense of it I can see. Like 
What do we do in, in mass? And this is actually oftentimes an apologetics issue with people who, Protestants who are, who are outside of the church. And what they experience is they say, oh, we, we call it the sacrifice of the mass. They're like, oh, so you're, offer, uh, you're making the sacrifice of Jesus time and time again. Right. But in fact, it's actually quite the opposite. We're encountering the one sacrifice of Jesus right. and that eternal moment. The day of the Lord is, in fact, the eternal present. Exactly right. That, 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 that we're, in, in one sense of the word, yes. that, um, is that, that we're actually entering into eternity. And like that passage makes it so clear. There's a humble of, an er, uh, of the earth the remnant who are the ones who actually are encountering the eternal reality of Christ's salvation, death, resurrection, ascension, and descent of the Holy Spirit, um, all in this singular, um, amazing pastoral salvific action of Christ, yeah. which is the encounter with, the etern- with eternity. Absolutely. And, and what it's saying also is that this day of the Lord is going to come, mm-hmm. of which we still today participate because it's an eternal moment. But this day of the Lord is coming on the other side of this day of the Lord. There's going to be a remnant who's left who are seeking to be humble and lowly and meek and calling upon the name of the Lord. Mm. If you have our day of the Lord embodied in life in the death of Christ, this outpouring of fire that comes after that. Well, who is this humble, lowly, meek of heart remnant that's left after the day of the Lord? Um, Is it the Mormons? (laughs) Yes. Come on, man. I'm, I'm just kidding. It's the church. It's, it's the church. It's the Holy Catholic Church. So that being said, I'm jumping ahead of ourselves. So forgive me for a moment. But just our, our gospel reading is the Beatitudes. It's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the humble, blessed are the poor in spirit, all of those things. What Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is giving instructions for life after the day of the Lord. This is what you ought to look oh. like. Here is how to be the remnant that Zephaniah talks about. I'm giving you the play-by-play instructions for what it means to be that remnant that Zephaniah talked about. Basic instructions before leaving earth. David Bowie, well done. Does that make sense? That's how I'm putting these together. Yeah. Is that? Does it, do you think that's true? I, I mean, I don't really think it's valid, and I think that you, basically your intellect has been weakened oh by... Gosh. By years of sin, and so oh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I think Yikes. that you're totally bang on. Oh, I mean, what man. am I going to say to that? I don't know. You're the best. No, dude. I'm just trying. I'm trying to put these pieces together. No, I think that I think it's amazing pieces. I think we like Zephaniah as a key is like yeah. it's cool, really powerful. Because nobody looks at Zephaniah. No, you never expect Zephaniah. Zephi. Yeah. Zephi, I, I encourage all who are pregnant right now <laughs> to consider this as a name for your child. Zephi. Especially Which, you who are doing laundry right now. You're folding something and you're just like, I've been wondering about the name of my new child. Have your cup of coffee resting on your pregnant belly. Yep. Um, Psalm 146. Here's how I think this fits that's in. That's near the end of the Psalter. Well, that that's, I think, kind of the key to understand. I mean, the, the content is obviously applicable. The Lord keeps faith forever, seeks justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry. I mean, really what we're, all of the readings are playing on the Sermon on the Mount. There is this this um, echo of the words of the Sermon on the Mount that, echo, that echo, comes through <laughs> all of the readings. And readings, so, yeah, readings. and Psalm 146 is talking about, about, about embodying the Sermon on the Mount. But, no, no, no. 
not just it's not just the content of those um, stanzas about the oppressed and the feeding the hungry and the beatitudes being embodied, but the fact that it comes at the end of the Psalter. Remember, we've talked before about the structure of the Psalter. The Psalter shows up to us in the Psalter. By the way, is the the, the name for all of the Psalms it's, put together. Right? It's not the thing that's on your dining room table. I need some more Psalter on my steak. But the Psalter is broken up into five books, right? And you see that in your Bible. There's book one. There's book two, book three, book four, book five. But the reason that it's done that way, one of the reasons is that those five books are, well, on one level, they represent the Torah, the five books of the Torah. But all of the Psalms put together are basically the history of salvation in song. And each of those books represents a particular piece of salvation history sung out, compiled, you know, written throughout the ages, but compiled by one you know, a Holy Spirit inspired editor who brought them all together. But in, so book one and two, for example, it's all books about King David and the kingdom and the kingdom that God built and its glory and all these things. Book three has a lot to do with the destruction, dismantling of that kingdom and woe is us and where is God? And he looks like he's abandoned us because we've lost our kingdom. Book four is actually, book four really is all about creation. Basically saying, okay, we've lost our kingdom. Where do we find God now? Because we don't have a temple anymore. We don't have a priesthood to show us that. Well, we see God still active around us. In the same way that the sun moves from east to west, we see that God is continually there. But then in book five, the last book where this psalm appears, you start to get psalms of David reappearing. And Psalm 5 doesn't just say, okay, how do we find God now? It looks ahead and says, no, God is actually going to reestablish his kingdom. There is a remnant. It will be left and it will be built back up and David will return and he will reign, which of course is Jesus. So what the last book of the Psalms is pointing toward is the reality that comes after the day of the Lord prophesied in Zephaniah. What does it look like at the other end? And book five of the Psalter is meant to get you really excited for something that your eyes have not seen yet and that your mind can't even quite dream of and comprehend yet. I mean, you're reading something like Zephaniah, you're like, this is really ugly and brutal and there's fire and there's death and destruction and obliteration. But then to look at it from this side and feel and see, oh, Jesus actually embodied that he took it. And now we actually live in the reign of the eternal David. We're in this. This is what book five of the Psalms we're talking about and pointing toward and hoping for and dreaming of and longing for. We're living in the middle of it. And Jesus gave us the instructions on what that looks like. But it looks like humility. It looks like being humble of heart, of bringing down the oppressed, of, of feeding the hungry, of giving sight to the blind and doing these things. We're living that. But I, I, I don't know. I think where that appears in the psalm actually says a lot about how it ties into the scheme of readings. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, to uh, located in the fifth Psalter uh, is like, yeah. I mean, the fifth book of the Psalter, it's like, yeah, no, we, that's really where we're, we're well, because that's the, the book of hope. Inten- if intentionality goes like this. Uh, the final intention, the one where you're going is the, 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 the goal, the telos of something, the end of something is... Uh, first in intention, last in execution. First in intention, last in ex- Okay. So in a certain sense, this song is about the verb. It's a verb. It's the executions. It's the last in execution. So right now at the beginning of the liturgical season, we're having the first in intention so that because it's the last in execution. Oh, okay. So I we're got, looking got, towards gotcha. to, to Haramagedion, to the, Haramagedon. To, to, to the eternal moment of the day yeah, of the yeah. Lord. That's what we're actually anticipating. Yeah, absolutely right.
Oh, that's cool. So consider your calling, brothers and sisters, because mm. the reality is that not many of you were wise by human standards, and not many of you were powerful or rich or of noble birth. Rather, God has chosen the foolish and of the world to shame the wise, and God chose the weak of the world to shame the strong, and God chose the lowly and the despised of the world, those who count for nothing, to reduce to nothing those who were something, so that no human being might boast before God. It is due to him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, as well as righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, whoever boasts should boast in the Lord. Good that night, was actually, everybody. That was actually kind of fun to do, like, as a response. Yeah. I liked that. No, it's cool. Um, that, that's Corinthians, in case you're wondering. That is First Corinthians. A word about that. So we we talked about this a lot last week. Well, at least I think I soapboxed about it last week. <laughs> Probably. The context of Corinthians. Again, context is everything. The the city of Corinth. I you know it reminds me a lot of the things that we struggle with in our society in this part of the world. I, I, th- I think some we people do. were trying to Corinthianize this last weekend. Oh my. Oh, what was this last weekend? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Sound like a smoker old man laugh. Anyway, <coughs> excuse me. <laughs> anyway, so the yeah the Corinthians, they struggled with a lot of things. There was a lot of sexual immorality. There was a lot of boasting in themselves. There was an inferiority complex. Remember, they lived down the road from Athens, Athens. Um, where they were big in philosophy and thought. Corinth, um, the, the, the social structure in Corinth, I think, is so crucial because Corinth was one of the only places in the Roman Empire, in the world, where someone from a shady background or maybe a former slave or a former criminal could actually come and start a new life. Because, you know, in the ancient world, there's this caste system where, you know, if you're from a lower caste or come from poverty or your father was a carpenter, then you you're going to... broke gonna, your leg. Or you broke your leg. Caste system. I see uh. up there. But you know, I mean, you're stuck into the system that you're born into. Right. We don't have that experience as Americans. We and we pride ourselves in this, you know, we have the social mobility and we can climb the corporate ladder and do all these things, right? This it's big for us. But that wasn't how the ancient world worked unless you lived in Corinth. And Corinth was one of the only places where you really could start fresh. Right. And you could it was it was, you know, on the books. It was one of the only places where a former slave could hold public office, which was unheard of. Oh, wow. So, but it also contributed to this, you know, nobody's going to question your past. We, you could come from all sorts of shady background and stuff in your, stuff in your past. Nobody's going to question that in Corinth. So, you know, there were some eyebrows raised at these Corinthians, but they got very wealthy because they were a port city, lots of opportunities for entrepreneurial stuff, but they were very wealthy. They were fairly powerful in their own way. They wanted to fancy themselves as really wise like the Athenians, but the whole world just made fun of them. So yeah, they had a lot of money, but it was new money. Um, they didn't have any kind of class system. They were you know, former slaves and criminals, and that's just how the world looked at them. And they, they made fun of them with Corinthianizing, you know, their sexual immorality, and they're, they're just a joke over there in Corinth. And so when Paul says stuff like, consider your own calling, not many of you were wise, not many were powerful, not many were noble birth, who is he talking about? He's talking about you, Corinthians. You guys are not wise. You guys are not nobility. You guys aren't powerful. You are the lowly, despised, the foolish. That's how the world sees you. He's tearing them down in a real sense because they want to be seen in a certain light. And Paul's saying, you're not nobility. You're not wise. You are not great philosophers. (laughs) You're a bunch of Johnny-come-latelys who got rich quick who came from a bunch of shady background that the world <laughs> looks at and is a living joke. That's who you are. 
And you're like, Jesus, Paul, that's really harsh. But he's like, but that's the catch. You know who you are. At least you should know who you are. Mm -hmm. But God chose to use you. He chose to use what's foolish and not noble and not powerful to show how powerful he is. So recognize your own humility. Recognize your own smallness and littleness and nothingness. And then see how much God has done through you and recognize how powerful that is. What Paul is trying to say is, look, you are the remnant. You are the remnant of Zephaniah. You are those who God foretold would be waiting and building up the kingdom after the day of the Lord. You are not wise by worldly state. It's not because you're rich and powerful and wealthy and wise and great philosophers and brilliant businessmen and all these things. That's not why God shows you. It's because he wants the weak and the humble and the lowly and the oppressed and the beat down mm. because that's who he can best work with. But as long as you fail to recognize that you're lowly and oppressed and nothing and worthless and uh, weak, yeah, yeah. he is not going to be able to use you because you're going to put all the effort on yourself. But God has used you, which shows you how powerful God is. Mm. He's trying to show them who they're supposed to, who they are, but that they fail to recognize they are. And this is the same for us. Every time we re we think it's good, you know, humility, I we have this false understanding that humility means to tear yourself down. That's not what humility is. Humility is just to recognize the truth about yourself. Right. I have certain gifts. I have certain flaws. I have sins that I struggle with. I have things that I don't struggle with. I think I have things that I'm gifted at. That's humility. There's good and there's bad. There's a lot of bad. There's a lot of good. And you I take sure them, hope you, God can use it. You take the good, you take the bad, bad you, you take, take them, them both, and there you have, have the facts of life. life. The day of the Lord. <laughs> yeah. Does that make sense? Tons. But I, I think that Paul's words to the Corinthians embody that so powerfully. I don't know. You uh, seem you seem I I mean I I troubled. No, no, no. No, no. I'm, All right. I'm good. I, I just am trying to connect this and trying to understand. I actually, I'm trying to, what happened is my brain was working and there should be steam coming out because I'm trying no. to connect this to the, uh, to the Beatitudes. Well, here's how I'm connecting it to the Beatitudes. Okay, yeah, because you, uh, you cause I, I, think, I can see it, you understanding and I'm like, think, I'm trying to locate this. So here's, here's the thing. Here's the, because maybe this is a good segue into the gospel too. So the, the gospel, again, it is those first 12 verses, the Beatitudes, what we think of blessed. Are the, so Jesus gets on up on a mountain in front of the crowds. I want to talk about the context in a second, but. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. You know, this is one of those passages we've heard it. I, I guarantee that subconsciously, without, you know, un, uh, unconsciously, I guess that's the word. Yeah. During mass, you should look for this. Look out over the congregation when you start to read these words. And I bet that you'll see a bunch of people whose eyes just start to glass over. Because it's so familiar. We've heard this so many times. I know. You're just like, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blah, blah, and, blah. And you only hear, blessed are the pure of heart, they'll see God, and blessed are yep. the poor in spirit. That's all you hear. But when I hear that, I, I, so here's the thing. We're talking about the meek, the lowly, the small. Those are who are, are the persecuted, the oppressed, all these things. Those are who will inherit the earth. And... Sometimes it's easy to see ourselves there. Sometimes it's easy to feel like, wow, I'm, I'm totally beat up on. I'm small. I need you, God. Sometimes that's easy to do. But there's right. other times where we think a lot of ourselves and we see ourselves on our big high horse. And we need to be reminded that, no, you are the meek of the earth. 
you were the humble, or at least you're supposed to be. Mm. And the Corinthians, I mean, this is the last line of 1 Corinthians is key. He says, whoever boasts should boast in the Lord. What the Corinthians love doing more than anything else is boasting about themselves yeah. and how great they are and the wonderful things they do and the things that they've built and the things they've accomplished and how rich and wonderful they are. He's like, if you want to boast, boast into the Lord because those are nothing. You are meek. Look at how the world looks at you. Yeah. You are meek. You just think you're not. Mm. It's like the donkey who carries Mary and Joseph. Thinks there are people who are cheering for the donkey. Yeah, the donkey at Palm Sunday, right? He thinks they're yeah. cheering for him. He's just a donkey. But how often do we do that? We're like, yeah, I'm awesome. No, you're a donkey. They're cheering for Jesus. <laughs> yeah, dude. But we do that to ourselves. And so this is a reminder that, no, you are supposed to be what Jesus called for in Matthew 5. You just forget about it. You actually are that. And that's what he's reminding of the Corinthians. You're not as great as you think you are. You really are meek and lowly and small and humble. And you need to call on the Lord in those things. But sometimes we need to be reminded like, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to be the meek. I'm supposed to be the humble of heart. I'm supposed to be the poor in spirit. Yeah, that's actually supposed to be me. Not these, because sometimes I, you know, I read it. I'm like, oh yeah, it means we have to care for the poor. And it means we need to be on the lookout for the meek. And it needs, we need to reach out to these people. You know what I mean? Yeah. But really do I think, oh no, that's just supposed to be me. Dude, well, and I am always struck by how like the, the Beatitudes are just all sufferings. Yeah, all, they all, are. There's, there's, there, none of them are great. All no. of the. Blessed are hunger the... and thirsting for righteousness. Maybe is the closest. Yeah, I mean, but but it means you thirst. haven't gotten it. Yeah, it means that you're just like I want to be holy. And yeah. have you ever met somebody who's really longing for holiness and how how elusive a holiness can feel? But they're usually the holiest ones. I know, but they're hungering and thirsting because they're like, yeah. man, I'm. Like, they're like, that's it, that's it. you ask any saint, and they're gonna be like, man, I got work. Yeah, absolutely. And like, like, and, and so I, I'm just always struck that it's like. Like they're like the humble of the earth. Like there's not a lot you get to do other than just be who you are. And a lot of times the virtues that we have in our lives are mysterious to us. We don't quite even get the great gift that we bring into the world because we just bring it already. But that's kind of beautiful. I go back to the first reading, go back about that passage in, what was it? Chapter three of Zephaniah verse eight or something where right before the fire falls, what are the people doing? It talks about them just sitting around and waiting and I picture the apostles in the upper room. They're just scared to death. I mean, talk about that humility that you just Mm. mentioned. All they can do is just kind of be there. They Mm. don't know what to do. And they're like, we're just here. We don't know what to, we're waiting. We don't know quite what we're waiting for. We're like, what do we do? Well, we'll just wait and keep the doors locked because we're terrified of what's out there. (laughs) And in their kind of patient, very humble, maybe embarrassing waiting, that's when the Lord breaks through the doors and the fire shows up and Mm. then they can break out of those doors because of the fire Mm, and speak in the tongues of all the nations Yes, because they were waiting there. They just showed up as themselves. They're like, we don't know what else to do. That's where God can work. That's what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. God's not going to be able to do what he wants to do as long as you're trying to do it all yourself. Just show up Mm. and he'll do it through you and for you. It's funny if you take the context of uh, the gospel here in Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, this is my last thought, and you okay. might have something to, to bring it home with, but the Sermon on the Mount, you know, which again, we've heard it a million times, the Beatitudes, yeah, I get it. But context is everything, because where Jesus, de- you know, we, we get this idea that Jesus could have said the Beatitudes sitting at somebody's kitchen counter, you know, or, or at a pulpit in a synagogue or something, but he didn't do it in any of those places. Where he said these words matters tremendously, mm. and where he said these words are on a hill slope in Galilee, 
And the people who hung out in the hill slopes of Galilee were the revolutionaries. It was the people who were gathering together to overthrow Rome. Militias gathered in the hill slopes of Galilee because it was easy to hide. And there were these dry wadis where they could hide their weapons and they could hide out from Roman authorities and they could get up on little hills and make speeches. If you wanted to make a political manifesto against Rome, you would go to the hillsides in Galilee, get up on a hill and start making a speech and rally your troops. Mm. So if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck and smells like a duck, it's probably a duck. So you're seeing Jesus go to the hillsides of Galilee, walk up on a hill, followed by this big crowd of people, and begin to make a speech. There's no ambiguity about what the context is. They're like, he's going to give a political manifesto. He's going to give a statement against the empire. He's going to rally the troops. He's giving a political speech. He's Luke Skywalker. He is Luke Skywalker. He's also Moses who climbs up on a mountain and gives a new law. Absolutely. There's all this imagery, but it's not just Jesus. Hey, be nice to everybody and be nice. This is a political manifesto about what it means to have a new kind of kingdom that Israel in the Old Testament failed at, but which God is in the process of restoring and rebuilding. Mm. It's going to come through fire, Mm -hmm. but it's coming. He's giving a political speech, but we don't want to read his words that way. But he's saying, this is the way your civilization should look. This is how you operate. This is how you overthrow Rome. This is how how you overthrow the evil empire. It's by being this kind of a people. Dude, which is so brought out when you go on like a walk for life. Like, we don't get a chance to use the tools of the enemy. Yes. That No, blessed are you when you're poor and naked and struggling and worn out and beat up. Like, all of these things, like, because... Now you have inheritance. Now yes. you have these things. So like he's saying, follow me on the way of the passion and of the cross. I am the way, and I'm going to show you what this looks like. It's funny to me, speaking of that, that you know, there's these huge crowds that appeared to be gathered uh-huh. at the sermon on at the you know this Mount of Beatitude, as it's called. Yeah. To hear this, you don't seem to see a bunch of people with Jesus right after the Sermon on the Mount. Mm. He's kind of back with his 12, and they all seem to have disappeared someplace. Isn't it interesting? Oh, yeah. They're all expecting a big political speech, a rah-rah speech about overthrowing the evil empire. And he gives this one, and everyone kind of seems to disappear suddenly. They're like, yeah, that was... Oh, can I cross? That guy was cool. And and bless you, they would persecute you. I'm going to go listen to this guy over here. And evil, you false because of me. (laughs) For your reward will be great in heaven. You're like... Yeah, bro. Um, yeah, I'm gonna go listen to this guy on this other hill. Yeah, I belong to I, I belong to Elohim or yeah. something. No, Elohim no. means God. I'm sorry. So, no, it's good. I was trying to come up with a name, but it shows the difficulty. I mean, you yeah. know, the March for Life in San Francisco is probably quite small still, but it's really beautiful because it's hard to show up for that game. It's hard to have that kind of humility. Yep. I remember I had the blessed opportunity a couple of years back to walk in the second ever. British, the National English March for Life, Oh, which was very beautiful, but it was really scary. It was a ragtag little group of us, and people were just confused and weirded out and giving us mean looks, but it was like, okay, we're doing this, and mm. we're, we're going to start this, and it's there's no fanfare, and there's no big crowds cheering for us, nope. but we're showing up, and it's good. Nobody's thanking us or patting us on the back, but this is a good thing. We're, we're carrying this and we're small and we're humble and it's kind of embarrassing because people are looking at us, but that's good. That's what he's asking for us. Yeah. But few will want to go down that road. That's why Zephaniah calls it a remnant because it's a hard road to go down. Just like people who listen to the lanky guys. 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> small. It's a small group. It's hard to do. But blessed are you who's endured who have endured this to the, to the end. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you guys, God bless you. Thanks for walking with us in this midst of this. Like, may the Lord exp- help you to experience the day of the Lord. Indeed. And we, barring any other days of the Lord, we'll be back next week with a new episode, and we will see you then. Dude, if there's ever a video of us, I, we, I, I really want a bla- bad lip-reading version of us. That would be the best. I really want that one. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Bye. See you next week. The Word in the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.lankyguys.org. See you next week.